Welcome to the Just Thinking Podcast with hosts Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is the Just Thinking Podcast. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on? Uh, oh my he 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 You you went low. You went low this time. Oh, huh? like I finished my note. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Oh, yo, yo, oh, oh, ahead, oh, that was a whole note. That was a whole note, bro. I oh, that was a whole note. It wasn't a half. Yeah. I got you. I had to hold the fork. Gotcha. See, I, I have no. I have no background in music. I have no idea. I mean, whole notes, half notes, quarter notes. It all sounds the same to me. That just that's just kind of how. That's <laughs> what's going on, my man. Not much, man. I'm I'm glad to be back home. Was just, I mean, I, I just left. Your your space and place there, man. Uh, we we enjoyed the uh, Shepcon Shepherds Conference. This is my first Shepherds Conference, and uh, man, I, I'm I'm st- I'm still reeling, man. People at my church were asking me, "I saw the pictures. It looked amazing. How was it?" I just told them, I, I can't even put into words the experience. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, from what we experienced at the conference to getting a chance to hang out with you and your bride, uh, to the to the the fans of the show that we met, the stories. The stories that we heard, yeah. man, Daryl, the testimonies, the man, testimonies. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was just amazing, amazing, and it was, it was an amazing time. So I'm, I'm glad to be back home, glad to be back with, with my family, and it's just an opportunity to kind of just relax a little bit and just kind of really kind of download all the stuff that took place while I was out there. It was right. amazing. Yeah, well, it was our privilege, really, and our honor, man. Honestly, I say that sincerely to have you here with us at our home here in Santa Clarita, and uh, yeah, Shepherd's Conference. I kind of count this Shepherd Conference as my first as well. Although I yeah. physically was at the conference last year, right? But it was only weeks after my wife and I had landed here uh, mm-hmm. in California in in January, and then boom, the Shepherd's Conference was only a few weeks after that. Mm-hmm. And I was a part of the Grace to You team, uh, helping to staff the Grace to You display that we had right outside the sanctuary there. So I was so to speak, on the clock. Right, uh, right, right. Last year's Shepherd's Conference, but this conference, uh, Grace, you did have uh, a shared booth there, but we had so many of our team members there available to staff the booth. I was actually able to take in the conference, a lot of the sessions uh, that were held, meet some great, great brothers. And let me pause right here for a second, just give my thanks and appreciation to John MacArthur, Everyone at Grace Community Church, but especially the 867 volunteers. Wow, they were amazing. Were amazing at this conference. I mean, absolutely. You want to talk about the red carpet treatment? Yeah. The the men who were there, who attended, the attendees who were at the conference, at Shepherd's Conference, barely had to lift a finger. I don't. I, I don't know that I. I don't know that I did lift a finger for anything. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They were the volunteers at Grace Community Church are absolutely amazing. So, again, thank you, John MacArthur. Thank you, 
Grace Community Church. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the volunteers, many of whom I understand take their own personal vacation time. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. To serve yeah. during these three days uh, mm-hmm. each year. So thank you all for the sacrifices you made in serving us so well at the shepherds conference it was it was absolutely i I could go on and on about that 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 was it was it was amazing to have someone you know grab a plate from you or grab you know or or try to make sure you had something that you wanted to eat or wanted to drink and we're we're taking care of you and their disposition wasn't you know well this you know it's part of my job their disposition was right and it's our honor to serve you all because you guys as pastors and you know, at shepherds at, 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 you know, your local churches, you know, you serve so many, please allow us to serve you. I mean, it was that, it was that kind of an expression. It was amazing. You know, speaking of things, while I'm sort of, uh, in the, uh, uh, how will I, how should I say, uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, man, right now. So I'm going to give thanks also to our listeners. Mm. Listeners to the Just Thinking podcast, you all have been fantastic in being so patient with us, so understanding. You know, we mentioned at the top of the, Last episode that we did, Omaha, on racial reconciliation, mm-hmm. that because of our schedules, the first half of 2020, there will be fewer episodes of the Just Thinking podcast that we'll have time to do. Uh, and everybody has been so understanding about that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful for our listeners, uh, for mm-hmm. their support, for their prayers. I know you and I were talking offline just a second ago uh, about how excited we are to do this episode. And I'm really yeah. thankful for the opportunity to be able to do another episode with you so soon after the most recent episode that we did. So thank you to our listeners for understanding, for your patience with us. Uh, We really do take you all and and your support very seriously. Absolutely. Uh, So, so thank you all for, for being understanding. We're going to do our best to, uh, to be as consistent as possible uh, with our schedules being a little bit crazy here over yeah. the next couple months. One of the things, one of the things I'll add to that just briefly, and I know we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Well, one of the things I want to add to that just briefly is, is the, the, having talked with our, our listeners, folks who listen to the show, um, getting their feedback, hearing their testimonies about the impact that the show is having. Uh, it does two things for us. One, it, it, it excites us to keep doing, what we do, but also, and, and I think Daryl kind of alluded to it, we want to make sure that every episode is jam-packed, power-packed with as much content and information as we can possibly put into it so that you can go back and listen to it two or three mm-hmm. different times and mm-hmm. still kind of kind of mine out all the nuggets of what we put in it. And so while, while it may not be as free, while you may not be getting an episode as, as, as frequently as, as we have in the past, our hope is that everything that you get is so filled, so chock filled of, of with with information, insights, resources uh, that you're able to kind of chew on it, so to speak, for for a few for at least a couple of weeks until we get something else out. We really we really want to have a, a high quality product for you. So, Amen. Well said, Omaha. So that said, all the pleasantries out of the way. Mm-hmm. Let's dig in, shall we, my man? Let's do it. Let's, let's do, do it, it man. What what you got for? So, well, you know, as most Americans are aware, and I say most, because I never want to assume anything about anyone, but I do believe most Americans are aware that the year 2020 is an election year in our nation. Mm-hmm. And with every major election cycle comes debates between the candidates who are running for various political offices that are being contested across the country. Now, here in America, at the top of the political food chain, so to speak, 
is the office of president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And as we record this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, we are approximately nine months away from the presidential elections in which the current president, Donald J. Trump, a Republican, is running for a second term in office, and he'll be opposed in November by the yet-to-be-determined nominee from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll have more to say about that in a moment because the upcoming presidential elections are germane to the topic we're discussing today, which is a biblical theology of the role of government. Mm. A biblical theology of the role of government. Now, this is a topic that is in desperate need of clarity. And it is my prayer that God will use this episode of the Justing Podcast to help us people understand that topic just a bit better. Now, as we launch our discussion of that topic, I'd like to begin by taking our listeners on a bit of a journey back in time. Mm -hmm. In chapter one of the book, Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism, author Joshua Moravchik writes about the adoption in 1789 by the National Constituency Assembly of France. Okay, 1789, the National Constituency Assembly of France adopted a document known as the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Okay, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen was originally drafted by two Frenchmen, one a Roman Catholic clergyman and political commentator by the name of Emmanuel Joseph Sieyes, that's S-I-E-Y-E-S, Emmanuel Joseph Sieyes, and the other by the name of Marie-Joseph Paul Yves Roche Gilbert Dumotier. Dumotier held the title of Marquis de Lafayette. One of the interesting things about the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen is that it was closely modeled after the United States' Declaration of Independence. And that the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen was so closely modeled after the Declaration of Independence was no accident. I say that because it was none other than Thomas Jefferson, the chief architect of the Declaration of Independence, who helped the aforementioned Sayez and Dumotier construct their Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. Now, with all that as background, I want to quote directly from Moravchik's book, again, the title of which is Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism. I want to quote directly from that book because what I'm about to read to you will help put into context the broader conversation we're going to have on this topic of a biblical theology of the role of government and the importance that Christians develop and apply a biblical worldview of the role of government, particularly as that worldview is contrasted against a socialist paradigm of the role of government. So that is the lane that Omaha and I are going to be in in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. There are so, when you talk about the role of government, just as an mm-hmm. aside, Omaha, mm-hmm. yeah. when you talk about the role of government, there are infinite number of layers yeah. that you could approach this topic with. Yeah, there are. Inf- infinite. Yeah. But this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, we are going to stay in one very specific lane. That is to look at what Scripture says about the role of government up against what a socialistic paradigm of government looks mm-hmm. like. Okay? Mm-hmm. That is the lane we're staying in. 
All right. Now, that said, in his book, Joseph Moravchik writes this. Please listen carefully. Okay. Moravchik writes this quote, the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen tracked the U.S. Declaration of Independence in proclaiming that the reason for government was to secure men's rights. At its, des- at its designation of those rights, liberty, property, security, resembled the American triad of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, and this is a big however, As the revolution unfolded and new constitutions were written, the French added a fourth substantive right, equality. To be sure, I'm still quoting Moroptic here, to be sure the Americans had proclaimed that men were, quote unquote, equal. But this was not a statement of policy. It was a postulate about the nature of man and his relation to God. The French innovation was to include equality among the essential purposes of government. The impetus behind this was not hard to understand. Whereas the core issue for the Americans in 1776 was political legitimacy, for the French in 1789, it was social status. It was only in the dying days of the revolution that someone came forward to argue that there was a contradiction within the revolutionary agenda that fulfilling the promise of equality would require not merely the abolition of feudal titles and privileges, but the institution of a new way of economic life in which individual ownership would Mm -hmm. be abolished Mm -hmm. and each citizen would be furnished with an identical portion of nature's bounty, unquote. All that I just read to you was quoted directly from Joseph Moravchik's book, Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism. Now, did you catch that, Omaha? Moravchik mm-hmm. mm-hmm. says that in the Declaration of Independence, Americans have proclaimed that men were, quote, created equal, unquote, but that that statement was not a statement of policy. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was merely a postulate. Now, a postulate is something that is assumed to be universally true, okay? So as far as the Declaration of Independence is concerned, that men were created equal was not a statement of policy. It was merely a statement about the nature of man and his relation to God. But the French innovation was to include equality among the, the, quote, essential purposes of government, unquote. So in other words, Moravchik is saying that what the French did with their declaration of the rights of man and citizen is to take what was and still is a universal truth. And by universal, I mean a principle or rule or precept that applies equally and without bias or prejudice to every human being, every image bearer of God. The French have taken that universal truth and contorted it in such a way as to turn an objective truth into a subjective one. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what Joshua Moravchik has done in the few paragraphs I just read 
is to outline for us what many people, including many professing Christians, fail to understand. And that is this. There is a fundamental distinction to be made between equal and equality. Well, that's that. The, I want to I'm going to interrupt you there because I, I want I want you to repeat that because it is important. I mean, it, it's it's the it's the linchpin. It's the it's the it's the it's exactly it's kind of the anchor that you're trying to establish. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and it's an important one for us to note here. So if you've been checked out, if the if the link the quote lost you tune right back in here as as I ask my brother again to to repeat what what the what the fundamental distinction uh, is and what we need to make make note of. Yeah, as I was quoting Moravchik earlier, I mentioned that that the however within that quote, that there's a sentence where he starts with the word however to establish some context. And I said that that's a big however. And this is the big this is why that however is so big that. And let me just repeat what I said earlier from the beginning. What Joshua Moravchik has done in those paragraphs that I quoted just a couple moments ago is to outline for us what many people in America, including many professing Christians, fail to understand that there is a fundamental distinction, fundamental. There's a fundamental distinction to be made between equal mm-hmm. and equality. Okay. The former, that every human being is created equal by God. And we see that in Genesis one twenty seven and Genesis five, two, that every human being is created equal by God is objective and biblical. Whereas equality the idea that each person, as is stated in the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, should be furnished by the government a quote-unquote identical portion of nature's bounty, that idea is fundamentally unbiblical. That, that three-letter, okay, that three-letter suffix, I-T-Y, as in equality, as opposed to equal, changed the game forever for the nation of France because it introduced to its citizen an idea of the role of government that is wholly outside of and completely antithetical to the biblical parameters within which God originally designed government to operate. Mm -hmm. Consequently, today, 231 years after the adoption of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, France is regarded by many as a socialist nation. And it's primarily because of three alphabets, three seemingly innocuous letters that were added to that document more than two centuries ago. The letters I-T-Y. Now, I'll have much more to say about that in a few moments. In the meantime, is there anything you want to add to that, Omaha? Yeah, yeah. There, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, that I went back and looked. When you, when you began to kind of tee this up and sent this to me, I began to really kind of go back and do a little historic review. And uh, now our listeners may recognize we kind of went from zero to 60 in less than a heartbeat. So one of the things that I think it's important to note for our listeners, it's just a point of history, is the difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Right. And, and, and I want to use this distinction to amplify really a point that you're making with regard to equal versus equality. And uh, and I'll do it in this way. The Declaration of Independence was a declaration of war against Great Britain. We need to know that it was a mm-hmm. it was the British monarch who in 1765 enacted the Stamp Act. It was an effort to require the colonists to share in the equity of debt incurred by Britain's seven year war with France. 
Well, later, the British Parliament used a, 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 um, a declaratory act uh, to reaffirm its ability to tax the colonists at any time in an effort to share in the equity of government's debt responsibility. And then three years later, in 1773, the Tea Act was an additional tax on tea, which would spark the infamous Boston Tea Party. So what what, go, what government was doing, what what the British government was doing was they were they were believing in equality. Right. They were saying, hey, there's mm-hmm. there's some there's some there's some things that you all need to share in from a standpoint of of debt incurred and, and bills to pay that, that we need to that we need to take from you all. And time and time again, the British Parliament would arbitrarily determine what what required shared responsibility or equality. Mm-hmm. And, and the Continental Congress, made up of representatives in the 13 colonies uh, on May 10th, 1775, they, they had had enough of the intervention and the equality of government. The, the Second Congressional Congress would be responsible for the Declaration of independence, as you mentioned earlier, was written primarily by Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. and and its preamble would end up becoming the battle cry for the Revolutionary War, which had already begun. Now, if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's clear that what was desired by the colonists, what was desired by the colonists, was equal treatment under the law, as mm-hmm. they desired no taxation without representation. They wanted to be equal. They were not looking for equality of outcomes based upon a standard of the king. They weren't looking for a tyrannical government to give them what they believed they deserved. The leaders of the Continental Congress wanted to be treated as equals under the law, which was why the preamble states to that uh, it appeals to that fact that all men are created equal. This standard for mankind's status is is the basis of natural law, meaning that it is self-evident on the basis of the created order. I'll say this and, 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 and close up. Thomas Jefferson, in a famous letter that he wrote to Henry Lee, he stated the following regarding the purpose of the Declaration of Independence. He said this, and I quote, this, this, the objective of the Declaration of Independence was not to find new principles or new arguments never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independence uh, in the in the independent stand we are compelled to take end quote now what jefferson was establishing was not a new world order mankind he 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 was basically making the statement mankind is created as equal and it, it, the the fact that mankind is created as equal is innate it's inherent. It's intrinsic. Furthermore, the appeal of the preamble was on the basis that these truths were intuitive or self-evident. The establishment of equality as a subjective standard, which can never be objectively measured, was something they completely rejected. And, and that's what they were fighting against. They were actually fighting against the, st- the ever-changing standard of equality in an effort to establish their humanity on the basis of God's designed order of all men being created equal. You know, I can't thank you enough for that background, Omaha. I appreciate that. And our listeners uh, may be a little bit taken aback by the history lesson that we're Mm. delivering here at the beginning, but this is all in order to establish context because what we're essentially talking about here 
and our thesis largely is it boils down to one thing that there is a difference between equal and equality. Absolutely. It's equal and equality. Thanks for that, Omaha. I appreciate that. You know, on May 22nd, 2019, May 22nd, 2019, Veronique Derugy, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, published an article on the website of the American Institute for Economic Research. The article was titled, France is the socialist future we should dread. Mm. France is the socialist future we should dread, written by Veronique de Rougy. Her last name is D-E, small D-E, R-U-G-Y. In that article, Ms. de Rougy contrasts the French model of socialism with that of Cuba and Sweden and says the following with regard to the detrimental realities of harboring either a paternalistic or to be politically correct, a maternalistic view of the role of government in society. Now, what I'm about to read from the article by Veronique de Rougy is a somewhat lengthy passage, passage, but I'm asking our listeners to indulge me as what she has to say is critical to helping us understand the truth about what a socialist government looks like in reality. Mm. Okay. Veronique de Rougy says this, quote, France was once a role model for what big government can do for its people, but has become an embarrassing example since the, quote, Gillette Jeans, unquote. Gillette Jeans is French for yellow vests. It has become an embarrassing example since the yellow vests took to the streets to demonstrate against the insane amount of taxes they pay. These guys aren't upper class. They are the people who have until now supported the policies that are inevitable when you have the government providing so many services and involved so deeply in so much of the economy. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, released its annual revenue statistics report this week. And France topped the charts with a tax take equal to 46%. 0.2% of GDP in 2017. Wow. 46.2% of their gross domestic product in taxes in 2017. Mm. That's more than Denmark at 46%, Sweden at 44%, and Germany at 37.5%, and far more than the OECD average, 34.2%, or the US number, 27.1%, which includes all levels of government. France doesn't collect that revenue in the ways you might think. Despite the the stereotype of heavy European income taxes on the rich, Paris relies disproportionately on social insurance, payroll, and property taxes. Mm. Social taxes account for 37% of French revenue. The OECD average is 26%. Payroll and property taxes contribute 3% and 9% compared to the OECD averages of 1% and 6%. Mm. As a reminder, I'm still quoting Derugy here. As a reminder, the payroll tax is very regressive. It consumes a larger share of low and middle class earners than rich people. Mm. In addition, Then Europe adds a regressive consumption tax, the value added tax. In France, 
value-added taxes and other consumption taxes make up 24% of revenue. And that's on the low side compared to an OECD average of 33%. Consumption taxes often fall hardest on the poor and middle class who devote a greater proportion of their income to consumption. To be sure, the spending is all also more regressive in France in that the biggest share goes to the middle and low income earners. But it is a stupid system in which you t- listen to Deverji <laughs> here. But it is a stupid system in which you tax one group to redistribute to that same group. Mm-hmm. She closes with this. Add one more increase to an already high and regressive gas tax in France to the existing 214 taxes and duties, and the people went nuts. They have been protesting continuously since November 17, 2018. I don't condone the violence, Derouji says, but I understand why the protesters are so furious, yeah. unquote. Yeah. Omaha, what you got? This is this is I mean, none of this is shocking or surprising. Every time we see this this governmental intervention uh, in an effort to pick winners and losers, chaos ensues. This this is indicative of how every socialist system begins. It's it it begins with with some, you know, elite believing that they know best how to redistribute wealth. Uh, They stick their hands in the pot, promising all kinds of goodies. And everybody agrees wholeheartedly uh, until the payment for these things comes due. But initially, though, the, initially the commentary is, oh, we'll just tax the rich. But ultimately, everyone is involved. When you have government determining winners and losers on an arbitrary, ever-changing standard of, quote-unquote, equality, right? This, right. Is the, this is the kind of craziness that happens. And those intended to be the beneficiaries of government are the very ones that are hurt most. I thought what Darujis had to say was so brilliant in its simplicity. <laughs> Absolutely. So she stated that these taxes hit low and middle income uh, wage earners the most. Mm-hmm. She said it is a stupid system in which you tax one group to redistribute to, that to the same, same group. group. Makes no sense. I thought that was brilliant. That yeah. makes absolutely no. That's how socialism works, though. Yeah. That's exactly what they do. Yes. They say they're going to tax the rich, but who gets hurt? This the person, the people they, who, yeah, people they claim that they, they're helping. Exactly right. Yeah. So what is happening in France and in other nations in terms of its citizens embracing a socialist model of government is beginning to happen in America as well, particularly as it relates to the vast numbers of young people who are lining up to support presidential candidates who hold to that same visage of regressive and redistributive government. Mm-hmm. But not only is that visage of the role of government government being embraced to an increasing degree in America as a nation, okay, as evidenced, for example, by the fact that presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, a self-described, quote, democratic socialist, unquote, is considered by many to be the front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination. That worldview, that visage of government is also being embraced within certain elements of the evangelical church. Absolutely. Man, b- before you before you go further, I want to say this with regard to, to Bernie Sanders and, and democratic socialism and the like, and the fact that it is being embraced 
in the church, whether or not Bernie Sanders actually wins the nomination for the Democratic Party is irrelevant. It's irrelevant irrelevant from this standpoint. The worldview that undergirds socialism is within our societal structure to such a degree that at some point, unless there's a major shift or turn, we're going to see the demise of our country on the basis of the idea that socialism is the is is the way to go. It, it's the it's the it's the it's the way, way we should vote. Mm-hmm, it's the mm-hmm. it's the virtuous manner in which government should be run. And, mm-hmm. and 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 whether again whether I say this clearly whether or not he wins or loses the Democratic nomination, socialistic ideas are in are are permeate our culture to such a degree that we're going to see these ideas begin to seep in one way or another. And and to the to the final point you made there that it's crazy to see it's embraced to such a tremendous degree that we currently do within evangelical circles. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. This idea, this worldview, this philosophy of socialism is being embraced willfully within certain elements of the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. A case in point, okay, a case in point is what is known as the poor people's campaign, mm-hmm. a national call for moral revival. The Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is led by the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. Mm. Barber is one of the leading evangelical social justicians in the Protestant church today. Mm-hmm. In April 2018, the Poor People's Campaign produced a white, pa- a white paper, uh, a report, if you why will. Call, why, titled, they call it, why they call it a white paper? Uh, man, man don't, don't, don't get all intersection <laughs> on me, bro. <laughs> Don't don't you get off. Don't, don't you had don't, to know that was coming, bro. I, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. <laughs> let me let me let me let me go ahead and call it a report. Right, right, right. There you go. God. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2018, the Poor People's Campaign produced a report titled "The Souls of Poor Folk: Auditing America 50 Years After the Poor People's Campaign Challenged Racism, Poverty." the war economy slash militarism and our national morality. I'm going to repeat that title once again. This, this is from the poor people's campaign in a white paper they produced in April, 2018 titled the souls of poor folk auditing America 50 years after the poor people's campaign challenged racism, poverty, the war economy slash militarism and our national morality. Now, This report by the Poor People's Campaign contains three, quote unquote, mission statements, if you will, each of which we will take note of of shortly in this episode. Okay, the first of these mission statements, the first of these three mission statements was originally put forth in 1968 Mm -hmm. by an organization known as the Committee of 100. And they called it Statements of Demands for Rights of the Poor. The Committee of 100 back in 1968. One of the three mission statements that we're about to discuss titled Statements of Demands for Rights of the Poor. Now, that title sounds a lot like the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The mission statement of the Committee of 100 reads as follows in the aforementioned white paper from the Poor People's Campaign. Quote, we come to you as representatives of black, Indian, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican and white Americans who are the too long forgotten, hungry, and jobless outcasts in this land of plenty. We come to you 
because poor fathers and mothers want a house to live in that will protect their children from the bitter winter cold, the searing heat of summer, and the rain that now too often comes in through the cracks in our roofs and walls. We have come here to say to you that we don't think it's too much to ask for a decent place to live in at reasonable prices in a country with a gross national product of $800 billion. Now, let me pause there for a second. You have to remember that this was written back in 1968, okay? So 52 years later, the gross domestic product of the United States is more than $20 trillion now, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So continuing on the mission statement from the Committee of 100, we don't think it's too radical to want to help choose the type of housing and the location. Think it's asking for a pie in the sky to want to live in neighborhoods where our families can live and grow up with dignity, surrounded by the kind of facilities and services that other Americans take for granted. Unquote. That was the first of the three mission statements that we're going to discuss as produced in the white paper by the Poor People's Campaign. <clears throat> now, having read that statement, Omaha, what worldly philosophy or ideology does that sound like to you? Well, Marxism, to be sure, not to mention communism. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It's definitely socialism. You know, right. Def- at a minimum, it's socialism. at a minimum, it's socialism. Yeah. But we could we could throw a lot of other things in there as well. Absolutely. Now, it is important to note that the, that the pronoun in that statement that I began as I've, the very first sentence in that statement, the pronoun you. OK, mm-hmm. that appears in the very first sentence of that mission statement that reads, we come to you as representative of black, Indian, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, and white Americans, etc., The you to whom that entreaty is directed is the United States government. In fact, when you stop and reflect on the wording of that statement from the Committee of 100, it sounds a lot like a prayer. Mm-hmm. Three times in that statement, the phrase, we come to you, is used as if it were a deific, deific invocation adjuring the federal government to answer their prayers. The way that statement is written is almost as if they were addressing those petitions to God. We come to you. Okay. But contrast those supplications to the federal government by the committee of 100. to what scripture teaches. Okay. Philippians 419. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 34, 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8, listen to the pronouns in this passage, the personal pronouns here. 
Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, none of this is to suggest suggest that there is absolutely no role for government to play in society. Okay, I don't want anyone to listen to me right now to think that that is what I've suggested at all. Right. But I do want to remind our listeners that the question we're dealing with on this episode of the Just Thinking podcast is specifically this. What is the proper or more accurately, what is the biblical role of government in society? That is the question we're addressing today. Omaha, what you got? And a lot of lot of thoughts around that. Uh, you, you mentioned um, the the committee of one hundred. I mean this this was this was a committee that was born right out of the civil rights movement. This is after King, and uh, you got you got Reverend Doctor Ralph Abernathy, who is the the then president of the of the SCLC, and he he's pushing all of these. Uh, he's leading this cause and driving these ideas forward. I only mentioned that to say how how jaw dropping it is that this is this is the rhetoric of so called believers in Christ. I mean this this man had the title of of reverend and doctor, right? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So so he he was he was to represent the the Christian view. And I, there was an article that you had written a while back, a blog on your on your blog uh, a blog post rather that you that you put on your your blog where you really pushed the idea that the civil rights movement the 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 main arguments uh were on the basis of the 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 created order the the, the fact that we all are the imago dei am i a man right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what you see over time is as as power is in the hands of, of a hand of a handful of people that they begin to morph that and 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 begin to rather than looking to scripture looking to their own ideas and their own views to advance a particular cause this is this is why I think this is crazy. The other thing that I'll mention here is that it that that the ideas moving forward in our modern day are coming from Reverend Doctor William J. Barber. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now that that mm-hmm. brother's a mess. We've discussed him mm-hmm. on on <laughs> he is we we've discussed him on a previous episode. We have yes. And and it, it truth be told, man, it is difficult for me to call him a Christian with some of his more radical statements. I went back and did did some research on some of the some of the things he stated uh, around socialism, around communism, where he he doesn't shy away or, or blush from those words uh, around issues around life. Uh, there, everything that he stands for. Uh, when he begins to present uh, social political views, are are polar opposite what Scripture mm-hmm. has to say about these particular issues. And so what I say is that Reverend Barber uses the issue of quote unquote race for the purpose of hustling money from white liberals who give platform for his voice and fuel his cause. And this is exactly the opposite of what men like Jefferson and the founding fathers of the country were actually fighting for in the declaration of independence that you mentioned. They desired independence from a tyrannical monarch. As you mentioned, this this is a prayer or a petition 
to government, to the government mm-hmm. system, and, and a system that's unable to provide anything apart from stealing the goods from some in an effort to give them to others. Finally, I, I think you hit the nail on the head as, as barbers and others like him are petitioning government as God in the way that mm-hmm. the scriptures appeal to the sovereignty of God as savior and sustainer of us all. I'm telling you, man, that 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 mission statement by the Committee of 100 reads just like a prayer. It's ridiculous. I mean, seriously. So yeah. I encourage our listeners to just go back a couple minutes, just hit that rewind and go back a couple minutes and just listen to that again. Yeah. Uh, three or four statements within that mission statements begin with, we come to you. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, what, is, what can, in the you, world is this? You can go back and pull the I mean, I've got the archive statement on my computer right now. It was it was delivered uh, statement of demands for the rights of the poor presented to the agencies of the U.S. government by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and its committee of 100 April 29th and 30th, May 1st, 1968. Well, there you go. There you go. You know, Omaha, I mentioned earlier that there were three mission statements that are presented in the white paper that was published by the Poor People's Campaign. The first one, which was put forth by the Committee of 100 back in 1968, is what I read earlier. But the second mission statement I want to touch on is from 2018 and is authored by the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber himself. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is the second mission statement. It reads as follows, quote, With the realities of systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation and the war economy and the often false moral narrative of Christian nationalism, we are at a moment in time which we need a deeply moral, deeply constitutional, anti-racist, anti-poverty, pro-labor, transformative fusion coalition, whatever that means, where people of all different races colors and creeds come together to engage in moral direction action. Again, whatever that means, massive voter mobilization and power building from the bottom up state by state. And even in the U S Capitol, we need this to change the narrative and insist that we no longer engage in attention violence against the poor. What What? in the world is that? What is that? that we no longer engage in attention violence against the poor and other interlocking injustices that connect to poverty, unquote. That's that's All some right. that's some postmodern verbal soup. I mean, that is that's so some postmodern gobbledygook right there, <laughs> man. I mean, I mean, a bunch of words saying exactly nothing. Absolutely you know? nothing. But that was that's the second of the three mission statements we want to talk about. Those were the words of the Reverend William J. Barber himself, as included in the white paper by the Poor People's Campaign. Now, if you were listening closely to what I just read, you undoubtedly detected the unmistakable aroma of a philosophical porridge that consists of a dash of liberation theology, (laughs) a smidge of socialism Mm -hmm. and a pinch of Marxism. Mm hmm. But that kind of government gumbo is exactly what you get when you are convinced that government exists to create equality as opposed to ensuring that everyone is treated equally. That's good. That's good. I'm going to say, I'm going to say that again. Yeah. If you were listening closely to what I just read from Reverend Barber, that's government gumbo. Okay. That's what I call it. That's just government gumbo, but that's what you get. 
when you are convinced that government exists to create equality mm-hmm. as opposed to ensuring that everyone is treated equally, there is a difference. Okay. Now, the third and final mission statement of the Poor People's Campaign is a lot like the previous two. Only this one is from the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. Dr. Theo Harris serves as co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. She says this, quote, immigrants, Muslims, youth, and homeless people are under attack. The poor are facing severe cuts to basic social services. Millions of people are living without clean water and sanitation services. Voting rights are being suppressed and wars are being waged across the world and intensifying. Mm -hmm. These and many other crises mean it is urgent we build a poor people's campaign today. Unquote. (laughs) Now, wow. Unbelievable. That's when A plus Z, A plus B equals zebra, <laughs> xylophone. I mean, how did we come up with that? I mean, I mean, it's like she took random ideas, threw them together in, in the government gumbo that you mentioned and, and came out with, by the way, we now need some money. You know, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Exactly. That's just, when, you, when you boil it all down, that's really what it is. Right, right. You know. So what I've just read to you from the Committee of 100, from the Reverend Dr. Theo Harris, and from the Reverend Dr. Barber, is the fruit of a worldview that sees equality as a, quote-unquote, essential purpose of government, as was stated in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. That is critical that you understand this. There is a distinction. I'm going to keep hammering on this. There is a difference to be understood between equal and equality, you see. And what we just read here from those three, well, one entity and two individuals, is what you get when you see the role of government as pursuing equality as one of their essential purposes. But see, here's the problem with that, Omaha. Here's the problem with viewing government viewing the role of government, that that government should be involved in pursuing equality over treating its citizens equally. The problem with that is that you cannot have equality without engaging in partiality. Absolutely. You cannot. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, it is, it is impo- you cannot have equality without engaging in partiality. And in Scripture, partiality of any kind is sin. Now I say that in light of the following verses. Leviticus 19:15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. Luke chapter 20, verse 21, they questioned him, that is Jesus. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Opening his mouth, Peter said, 
I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Then James chapter two, verses eight and nine. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Mm. Now, that verse in James chapter 2, verse 8, contains a very important phrase that I don't want our listeners to miss. It is the phrase, according to the scripture. Mm-hmm. James chapter 2, verse 8, according to the scripture. That is what we are here to discuss in this episode today, Omaha. Namely, what is the proper role of government according to the scripture? Mm-hmm. In other words, what do the scriptures say? What does the word of God teach us about the role of government and its authority to confiscate and redistribute the wealth of others under the guise of promoting equality? in society as a, quote, essential purpose of government, unquote. Right. Now, when you reflect objectively, okay, objectively on the three mission statements that I read earlier from the Poor People's Campaign, there are at least four themes that each of those statements has in common, at least four. They are these. Number one, their collective emphasis on the poor as defined by a lack of, or absence of certain material possessions. Mm -hmm. Number two, their collective emphasis on material possessions as the sole remedy to that material poverty. Number three, their collective emphasis on government as the sole provider of that remedy. And lastly, their collective absence of any reference to God and his sovereignty in allowing such situations of of, of material poverty to exist. Now, I want to expand on point number four for just a moment. Point number four, the collective absence of any reference to God and his sovereignty in allowing such situations of material poverty to exist. I want to expand on that a bit. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two and three. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse three, he humbled you and let you be hungry. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That was Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Verse 3 says that God humbled the Israelites and let them be hungry. God let them be hungry. The Hebrew verb phrase there, let you be hungry, literally translates to mean that God allowed their stomachs to be empty. Wow. Thoughts on all. And there's a lot of stuff that you ran through, and, and as you kind of – unpack that i had i had three three things that i made note of that this some groundwork that i kind of want to cover and and i'll I'll name the three then i'll go back and kind of expound on them the first is the subjectivity of definitions like the poor the subjectivity Mm -hmm. of definitions Mm -hmm. wow 
The second thing is the segregation of humanity into groups for the purpose of tearing down power structures, which is which is mm-hmm. Marxian theory, top mm-hmm. to bottom. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is the pointlessness of categories and the use of uh, ambiguous language for the purpose of confusion, which allows people to have their personal agendas achieved. So let me let me start with the first one: the subjectivity of defi- of of the subjectivity of definitions like the poor. Quick example from from an article in Forbes magazine by Tim Warstall. It's where Warstall actually cites uh, from his findings in a Brookings Institute study. Warhol states this in his piece, quote, the Brookings Institution looked at different ways of measuring poverty and then using different methods to compare U.S., the U.S., uh, to the accepted global standards used to describe poverty. The end result of all of this is that if we measure poverty in the U.S., the same way that the World Bank does for the, wor- for, for the rest of the world, then there would actually be no poor people at all inside of the United States, end quote. That's, that's the Brookings Institute. Basically, what, Warhol, what Warstall is stating is that the idea that anybody in America is actually claiming to be poor, if we were to compare them on the basis of the rest of the world, they'd have no argument to make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of their efforts would be, for not this this subjectivity in, in term and terminology, the poor are, are problematic as they provide no clear idea as to who is actually in view. I, I, again, they're not they're their chicanery. Uh, these these race hustlers, all of their ideas only work inside of the United States context, and it's never compared to the rest of the world on purpose because they mm-hmm. know. There's no argument to be made on that basis. The second thing, the segregation of humanity into groups for the purpose of tearing down power structures. We discussed the fact that leftist and social justicians purposefully segregate humanity into subcategories. So this this idea didn't originate with them. This foundational idea had its origin in Marxist theory. Marx created class consciousness, the proletariat, the landowners, peasants, Mm -hmm. farmers. Mm -hmm an effort to separate groups and in order to create discontent to overthrow socioeconomic power structures. Now, while, while we may believe, while we, while we, we may believe and, and agree uh, that, that it's important for us to look at power structures and examine how they operate, we have to be aware that what we're creating in a new power structure ha- may have the, the, the false intention of doing the exact same thing for which we've determined we need to tear down the structure. What, what's happening are these groups are forming, formulating for the purpose of trying to overthrow some power structure only to assert themselves in the power to do the yep. exact same things yep. that, they're, that, that they're claiming others exactly. are doing. Exactly. And, and the whole reason for that is because there's there's no objective standard. There's no object. Mm-hmm. It's not the, the, the standard is not the objective standard of scripture. It, it's mm-hmm. it's anyone's subjective idea as to what they see uh, as 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 a challenge, as you know, as 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 oppression. And, and that's that's really their point of view. I, I say this when a biblical anthropology is replaced with philosophical interpretations of who man is. The consequences have always been catastrophic. Hmm. It's always been catastrophic. Third thing is the pointlessness of categories and the use of ambiguous language for the purpose of confusion. I mean, the, you you mentioned it earlier. Most of this stuff is 
word gumbo. I mean, it is government gumbo. It's word gumbo. None of it means anything. They never, they, there, there is never a, a de- one of the things I love about our show is we take the time to define mm-hmm. our terms. Yep. And if, if what, what our, what our listeners need to know is that whenever, whenever these subjective ideas about, about oppression are in place, they're, they're these blanket statements that have no foundation, no definition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of language is purposeful for the, for the, for the mere fact to confuse you, to cause you to halfway agree with an idea that has, that has no basis in, in, uh, in, in finding the truth, right? Finding reality, finding what, finding the evidence to support these, these statements that are being made. And, and all of that is by design. All of that is by design. Mm-hmm. So that sure person, is. Yep. the person in charge can actually push forward their own, their own ideas and agendas. You know, Omaha, the four common themes that I mentioned earlier from the poor people's campaigns, various mission statements, bringing in my mind the words of Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon said in a sermon titled The Happy Beggar, which he preached on May 16, 1907, Spurgeon said this. This is from his sermon titled The Happy Beggar. Quote, there is no crime and there is no credit in being poor. Everything depends on the occasion of the poverty. Some men are poor and are greatly to be pitied, for their poverty has come upon them without any fault of their own. God has been pleased to lay this burden upon them, and therefore they may expect to experience divine help and ought to be tenderly considered by their brethren in Christ. Occasionally, poverty has been the result of integrity or religion, and here the poor man is to be admired or honored. At the same time, now listen to this, folks. At the same time, still quoting Spurgeon, at the same time, it will be observed by all who watch with an impartial eye that very much of the poverty about us is the direct result of idleness, intemperance, improvidence, and sin. You know you can't say that nowadays. I know, man. I, I, I tried to redact that, but my eyes just were so focused on that. Right. I tried right. to redact it. Right, right. Sp- Spurgeon says that very much of the poverty about us is the direct result of idleness, intemperance, improvidence, and sin. Let me just uh, pause here for a second before I wrap up Spurgeon's quote. See, if he, if Spurgeon were here today, at at that period right there, that would be the part of his message that folks would walk out the door. Absolutely, absolutely. In, in, in today's church. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they will walk out the door right there where he, where Spurgeon dared to say that much of the poverty about us in the world today is the direct. He said direct result, direct result of idleness, intemperance, improvidence and sin. Dude, they will be bolting out of the pews. Being offended. Well, I'm going to get to that in a second, but I would, that, love, that, I, would love, I would love to. I'll interject this. I know you. I know you're in the middle of a quote, and I try not to interrupt you between quotes. But I, I, I have to say, I would. I would love to see the pastor who 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 had the gravitas, right, to to step up in a platform and to say that declaratively, right, to 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 declare this truth and stand on it and 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 deal with what comes thereafter. What comes we, may. That's right. Yeah. We, we don't have th- those men are very few in our current day. Indeed, brother. Indeed, they are. 
That, that that's this is exactly why I make the point because there sadly there are so f- few courageous men who would stand in the pulpit and say something like this and just say bring it. Mm-hmm. This is true. Very much of the poverty about us is the direct result of idleness, intemperance, improvidence, and sin. Spurgeon says there would probably be he he said there would probably not be one tenth of the poverty there now is upon the face of the earth. If the drinking shops were less frequented, if debauchery were less common, if idleness were banished and extravagance abandoned, unquote. (laughs) That's good. Spurgeon wouldn't last five minutes Mm -mm. in most churches today. No. Why? Because given the hypersensitive million which you and I currently live today, Omaha, I have absolutely no doubt. There are those listening to me right now who have already judged those words from Spurgeon to be uncaring, unloving, and unchristlike in their tone while completely disregarding the veracity and accuracy of what he said. Right. Nevertheless, despite their sensitivities, Spurgeon is absolutely correct. He's absolutely correct. Now, notwithstanding that God is sovereign over everything that occurs in the world, and we see that in Psalm 103, 19, where it says the Lord established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Notwithstanding that God is sovereign over everything that occurs in his world, the fact remains that the principle of reaping and sowing is not rendered moot or impotent simply because someone is materially poor. Listen. I'll put my resume, my own resume of material poverty up against anyone's. Okay. I have not lived an easy life in terms of material comfort, but that reality doesn't mean I can just rip second Thessalonians three ten out of the Bible as if it doesn't apply to me. Right. It says if a man does not work, he should not eat. It is that precept, that precept from second Thessalonians three ten that Spurgeon is alluding to in the quote I just read. Mm-hmm. Remember, God shows no partiality, none to anyone, regardless of their socioeconomic situation or circumstance. Matthew 545 says that the Lord causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The principle of reaping and sowing applies universally to every individual. That fact is clearly established by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This he will also reap. Whatever a man sows. A primary reason why so many professing Christians today have such a misguided concept of the role of government in society is that they've completely lost sight of the fact that God is a God of consequences. Good. The first evidence of that reality is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Mm. God made it clear to Adam that there would be consequences if he disobeyed, and that those consequences would be severe. In fact, Those consequences were so severe that they continue to reverberate throughout Adam's progeny to this very day. Now, the reason I'm placing so much emphasis on this matter of consequences 
is because many many people believe it is the role of government to come to the rescue of individuals who have violated God's precepts and principles, and as a result, are now experiencing the consequences of their decisions. That, that right there will preach. That right there will preach. You got to go back and say it again. Now I'm, I'm going to cue. I'm going to cue the mascot, even if I have to do so myself. I'm cue so the mascot right here. Oh, good. We got people in the church. Who believe it is the role of government to come to the rescue of individuals who have violated, they have willingly violated God's precepts and principles, and as a result, they're experiencing the consequences of their decisions. This goes to what I said earlier. God is a God of consequences. For example, there are countless individuals who have incurred burdensome amounts of student loan debt in pursuit of a college education and who, because they don't want to have to pay those loans they're not placing their hopes in certain political candidates who have promised to have those student loan debts canceled. Right. The scripture teaches that we should repay all our debts, regardless of how much we may owe. In Romans 13, 8, the apostle Paul exhorts us to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Consider also in Psalm chapter 15, verse three, which says that God honors those who swear to their own hurt and who do not change. Mm. In other words, God honors those who keep their word, who keep their promises, who do whatever is necessary to follow through on their obligations and commitments, whether financial or otherwise, even if doing so would be to their own detriment and injury. Proverbs twelve twenty two says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. And one way that followers of Jesus Christ can, quote unquote, deal faithfully in society is by paying our debts. Listen, if you profess to be a Christian and you owe student loans, God expects you to pay those loans back. For to place the burden on the, quote unquote, government is in reality to cause other individuals who had nothing to do with your incurring those debts to to, to bear the burden of your decisions. And that is a sin. Mm hmm. Besides, the question that must be asked here is this. From where, or more accurately, from whom, do these people think the government will get the money it needs to cancel their student loan debts in the first place? Right. Well, the answer to that question is from taxpayers like you and me, Omaha, and that's simply another form of stealing. Absolutely. Thoughts, man? Absolutely. I keep hearing the statement, and I know you've heard it too, that the statement that socialism is theft. Now I, yes. I wanna I wanna I wanna argue with that statement. I want to push back against that statement and that and that I, I believe there's there's a correction that needs to be made. When you, you think that? about it when you think about a thief, a thief comes in, he he, he steals from you uh, and makes off with your goods and usually doesn't come back for more. Socialism oh, whoa, whoa, is whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, bro. Cue the mascot. Cue the mascot right here. <laughs> Because it's about to go down. Dude, you're going to have to start. A, that is brilliant. Yeah, right? That it, is it, brilliant, it, bro. Start from yeah, the beginning, I, I, man. We'll let him a B3 mixed in. <laughs> I want to argue that, that the statement that socialism is theft is actually incorrect. It, it's, not, it's not a completely accurate statement. When, when you think about a thief, a thief actually comes in, breaks into your home, and makes off with your goods, and he doesn't come back for more. I, I want to argue that socialism is worse than theft. Socialism is slavery. S- socialism oh. is 
indentured servitude with an unruly slave master. Socialism is, is worse than serfdom. Socialism is the total and complete subjugation uh, at the hands of an angry government system. That's what socialism is. And sadly, sadly, in our current culture, there's a belief that socialism has been done incorrectly in the past and that we'll somehow get socialism right by calling it democratic socialism, Mm -hmm. uh, by, by, by appealing to some voter or volunteering over of our rights, regardless of how you slice it. Socialism is slavery. I really want our listeners to begin thinking about that and articulating that when you hear someone say, well, socialism is theft. No, socialism is worse than theft. Hmm. A a thief comes in to steal once he's gone. You don't see him again. Right. He's not coming back for the mere fact that he doesn't want to get caught. Socialism is indentured servitude. This forces you over and over and over again to have government in the in wow. the perpetual their perpetual hands in your back pocket stealing from you over and over and over again and I don't wow. care what you call it democratic or otherwise now now it's it's interesting that that we've never heard it said we've never heard this thing said and and I I I found this I thought it was I thought it was interesting we've never heard this said quote hungry citizens face chronic food shortages due to price controls and looting under extreme capitalism End quote. Like that's a statement. That's a statement you'll never hear. Right. There there aren't there aren't food shortages, chronic food shortages and looting based upon extreme capitalism. However, we know this to be historically true under Mm -hmm. socialism. Mm -hmm. And far Mm -hmm. too many people believe that they can create utopia on earth by promising things that they never have the responsibility to pay for. And I think that goes back to the statement you made earlier about uh, student loans. You know, I'm out. That was brilliant, man. Not trying to embarrass you, bro, but that was absolutely brilliant. You know, I said, you know, speaking of utopia, I sent a tweet out a few uh, a few days ago, maybe a week or so ago, mm-hmm. where I basically exegeted what the word utopia means. Mm. When you break when you break the word down in the Greek, the word utopia actually means nowhere. <laughs> That's literally look it up yeah. for yourselves, listener, yeah. listeners. The word utopia literally translates to mean nowhere. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You, know, that makes sense. you can't find it anyway. You can't find you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. You can't even find it. It's not you on know, a map anywhere, right? Exactly right. It's just, it's just, it's this ethereal sort of idea that nobody can pinpoint. But it, it goes back to the point you, all of this is so subjective. Even right. the utopia that they talk about is subjective. Right, right. And see, with, with socialism, 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 really, when you think about it, Omaha, and I'm, I'm sort of going off script here, but when you think about socialism, socialism cannot afford to get you to utopia. No. Because if it gets you there, then you don't need socialism anymore. Right. So socialism has no end goal. It cannot get you to whatever, whatever the subjective objective uh, that it su- supposedly sort of espouses. It can socialism cannot afford to get you there because as you just said, socialism is a thief that keeps robbing, continues to rob you. So you can't a socialist can't afford to get you to utopia. Otherwise, they won't have any other reason to keep stealing from you. Once you get there, you realize you're absolutely nowhere. You're you're nowhere. <laughs> which brings us full circle. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely so, it's, it's the it's the quote and I, and I I can't remember uh who it was that said it, but uh it's it's your feet. Planted firmly in midair. I mean that that's yeah. that's what that, that's I've what heard, that's where you are. 
I've, I've heard Dr. Stephen Lawson say that. So right. he was the first person I ever heard say that was, was Dr. Stephen Lawson. This is exactly right. Socialism is like having your feet firmly planted in midair. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I want to repeat something I've been saying over the entirety of this episode to this point so the people sitting in overflow can hear me. <laughs> there is a distinction to be made between equal and equality. Mm-hmm. The former is biblical and objective. The latter is unbiblical and subjective. Now, to drive that point home, I'd like our listeners to go with me to Matthew chapter 20 and the parable of the laborers. The laborers. Mm-hmm. Matthew 20 and the parable of the laborers. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 20. Starting with verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Verse five. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing about the 11th hour. He went out and found others standing around and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too." verse eight. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, this is verse 12, saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. That's Matthew 20, verses 1 through 12. Now, notwithstanding the larger spiritual principle that Jesus is conveying in this parable, that interest into the kingdom of God is a matter of God's grace and not our works, notice that the laborers who had worked the longest were very angry with the landowner because the landowner dared to treat them equal. To those who had worked fewer hours concerning the compensation that they were paid for their work. What the laborers who had borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day, as the verse reads, what those laborers wanted was not to be treated equally. What they wanted was equality. In other words, they wanted the landowner to exhibit partiality toward them because they had worked longer hours than the other laborers, despite the fact that they had all agreed to the same wage, mm. a denarius. In other words, the displeased laborers wanted to change the rules, which is what you have to do in order to achieve equality. Right. That's good. Now, by the way, the word equal in Matthew 20, verse 12, is the Greek adjective isos, that's spelled I-S-O-S, from which we get the word isosceles, as an isosceles triangle. And as everyone knows, an isosceles triangle is a triangle that has at least two sides that are of 
equal length. Equal length. Okay? So you can't have a, an, a, a triangle that has that does not have at least two sides of the same length and call it an isosceles triangle. You can't change the rules and call it an isosceles triangle. My overarching point in referencing the parable in Matthew 20 is to say that nowhere in Scripture is government said to be responsible for or obligated to ensure anyone equality, mm. either in terms of opportunities or outcomes. That's good. I agree wholeheartedly with what Wayne Grudem said in his book, Politics According to the Bible. Wayne Grudem said this, quote, I, can find, I cannot find any justification in Scripture for thinking that government as a matter of policy. Now, let me just interject here. That phrase as a matter of policy, a policy takes us all the way back to the beginning of this episode when we read from the Declaration of the Rights of the Man and Citizen because France adopted equality as a matter of policy, whereas with the Declaration of Independence in America, that all men are created equal was simply a postulate, just a statement of man, uh, stating man's relationship to God, relation to God. So this is very key what Grudem is saying here. I cannot find any justification in Scripture for thinking that government, as a matter of policy, should attempt to take from the rich and give to the poor. I do not think the government has a responsibility or the right to attempt to equalize. That's equality. They do not have the right to attempt to equalize the differences between rich and poor in a society. When it attempts to do so, significant harm is done to the economy and to the society, unquote. That was Wayne Grudem from his book, Politics According to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, taking from the haves and haves, I'm sorry, taking from the haves, and redistributing their possessions to the have-nots is what the Bible calls stealing. God says in Leviticus 19.15 that we are to be partial neither to the poor nor to the great. Yes, you heard that correctly. God views it as a sin even to be partial to the poor. That someone is materially poor is no excuse for the government to confiscate through coercion or force of law, mm -hmm. the possessions and property that rightfully belong to someone else. That's good. Listen, in Exodus chapters 35 and 36, Moses has been commanded by God to take up an offering from among the people to construct a tabernacle. In those chapters, an important phrase is often repeated. Listen closely here as I cite some verses from those chapters, Exodus 35 and 36, and see if you can detect what that key phrase is. Exodus chapter 35, verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Exodus 35, 21. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Exodus 35, 22. Then all those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Exodus, 20, Exodus 35, 26. All the women whose heart stirred with the skill, spun the goat's hair. 
Exodus 35:29. The Israelites all, the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Mm. Now, did you catch the phrase that you just that 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 that, that was repetitive throughout those verses? Whose heart stirred him, whose heart moved them, whose heart moved them over and over again in Exodus 35 to 36. My point is this. God wants his people to give out of compulsion, not coercion. Mm-hmm. For example, in Matthew, Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 19, we have the account of Jesus's. Uh, I'm sorry. We have the account of Jesus and the wealthy young ruler in Matthew 19. We all know the story, right? But in verse 21 of that chapter, Matthew 19, Jesus says to the young man, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. That's Matthew 19, verse 21. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I have something important to say in light of this passage in Matthew 19, 21. There are professing Christians out there today perhaps some who are within the sound of my voice right this minute who would dare to argue that Jesus was a socialist. Mm-hmm. You've heard this, right? Omaha. Absolutely. I'm talking profession, professing Christians, right? Who would dare to argue that Jesus was a socialist. Now, notwithstanding the utter absurdity of that assertion, let's consider thoughtfully what Jesus said to this young man in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. First, Jesus said, go and sell your possessions. Now, socialist Jesus would never have said such a thing as sell your possessions. Mm-hmm. Because number one, socialist Jesus would not have acknowledged that the young man's possessions belonged to him in the first place. Right. Socialism is a collective, collectivist ideology and consequently does not recognize individual private property. Okay. Socialism is a collectivist worldview. And as such, it does not recognize individual private property. With socialism, it's all about the collective, not the individual. Hence, why it's called socialism. Uh It's not called individualism. (laughs) Okay? Now, conversely, building on my earlier point, socialist Jesus would never have told the young ruler to go and sell your possessions. Instead, he would have commanded him to go and give your possessions to the poor, which consequently would have resulted in the rich man becoming poor as well, which ironically is the end result of socialism in terms of equal (laughs) versus equality. Right. Socialism makes everyone equally poor. Mm -hmm. But that that is the degree of license that some people are willing to give to the government simply because they think it is the role of government to ensure social equality as opposed to treating everyone equally as image bearers of God. So in terms of what scripture teaches, okay. And the objective, the objective truth of scripture is all that matters to us here on the just thinking podcast. Equal is never tantamount to equality. Okay. Equal is never tantamount to equality in terms of what scripture teaches what you got Omaha? man a lot a lot of ground that you covered a lot of a lot of foundation laying that you've 
prepared there. I want to I want to take just a minute to remind our listeners or let them know we've covered the grounds around socialism in previous podcasts. And I know you were talking about maybe putting a link to those. We had we had um, we had socialist savior that we addressed and dealt with there. Uh, you dealt you dealt you did a full on treatment of of socialism in and of itself. I, I think this in particular is timely because of the one point that you're continuing to drive home, which is equal is not equality. Thank and you. Uh, at that that's the that's the major. I mean, that's if you can't tell by now, that is the major thesis of what we're trying to state. When when I was there with you uh, at um, at Shepherd's Conference, uh, Steve Lawson was doing a, uh, a a treatment for all of the pastors and telling them how to preach better. And one of the things that he stated was that he said, you all you know, want to put together three point, four point sermons, five point sermons. He said, what you need to put together in an effort to be effective is a one point sermon. Now, in that one point sermon, you may have five different ways of getting that one point, but you need to drive that one point home. This one point sermon, if you want, if you will, that we're mm-hmm. driving home is that equal is not tantamount to equality. That is, th- th- those are two separate things that need to be noted. Socialism creates equality of misery everywhere it's tried. Yep. And, and I'm always, I'm always disappointed when people, particularly Christians, try to equate scripture with socialism. Socialism violates at least four, if not more, of the Ten Commandments. Number one, socialism replaces God with government, violating the first and second commandments. Mm-hmm. Socialism replaces parents with party, the socialist republic or the democratic socialism, violating the fifth commandment, honor mm-hmm. your mother and father. Socialism is worse than theft, as I mentioned earlier, violating the eighth commandment, not to steal. Socialism embraces the coveting of your neighbor's goods, and that is a violation of the tenth commandment. One and Come two, on, on. five, eight, ten. I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking at at least at least half of the ten commandments are complete violation on the basis of socialism alone. Socialism's appeal, however, is to the sinful nature in fallen mankind to Man, look for. Hold, hold, to, hold, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it. <laughs> Give me some mascot right here. Right. I need some mascot right here, bro. Why in that bag, bro? That was so right. Nice. I'm gonna need you to say that twice. Right. <laughs> Give me some mascot here. So- socialism's appeal is to the sinful nature in fallen mankind to look for ways to obtain everything that our darkened heart desires apart from the worship of God. Man, man, come on. That's it. That's it. That was fire. It's fire because it's truth. Absolutely. It's true. Absolutely. You know, Christians who hold to a, a paternalistic or, if you prefer, maternalistic view of government do not understand. They just don't understand fundamentally how God designed government to function and operate in the first place. You know, the great reformer John Calvin speaks to that in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And in the chapter on civil government, Calvin said this, quote, for it, that is government, it is not merely concerned with what people eat and drink and with how life is sustained, Mm. although it includes all those things by allowing men to live together. It involves more than that. It aims to see that idolatry, blasphemies against God's name and his truth and other offenses against religion are not openly promoted and spread among the people. That the public peace is not disturbed. Listen to this. Calvin said this is the purpose of government. 
that the public peace is not disturbed, mm-hmm. that each person keeps what is his. Okay, that each person keeps what is his and that men live together without injury or dishonesty. That's In good. short, Calvin says that among Christians, there should be an open expression of religion and that in society, humanity should prevail. Unquote. As John Calvin from his institutes in the chapter on civil government. You know what Calvin is articulating here is what a biblical view of government looks like. One that treats each of its citizens equally without getting involved in the business of equality, which invariably and unavoidably involves partiality. Mm -hmm. But consider these words from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, where God himself says, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial and you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. God views it as an injustice to be to be partial to anyone, whether they are poor or wealthy. The Hebrew, by the way, the Hebrew verb partial in Deuteronomy 16, 19, that word partial literally means that we are not to notice, regard, observe, pay attention to, recognize, acknowledge or make any other type of distinction that will result in our having a sinful bias or prejudice either for or against someone. That's what that word partial means in Deuteronomy 16, 19. God has laid the responsibility of caring for the poor upon the church, not the government. But even that comes with a caveat. For example, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Paul says, honor widows who are widows indeed. First mm-hmm. Timothy five, five. Now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. First Timothy five, 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it, that is the church, may assist those who are widows, that is, those who have been left alone as opposed to dependent widows, may assist those who are widows indeed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in those verses in First Timothy 5, three times, the Greek adverb indeed is used, and that adverb denotes that which is a reality and point of fact, okay, as opposed to that which is pretended fictitious, false, or conjectural, okay? In other words, in the same way that the church is obligated to help the poor, those who claim to be poor have a responsibility to demonstrate that they are truly in need. You can't just say you need this or you need that and expect the church to come to your rescue. No, you must be in need indeed. That is, in point of fact. In other words, according to the scripture, okay? Now, another biblical caveat with regard to the church meeting the needs of others is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul writes this. So then, while we, that is believers or the church, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That's Galatians 6, 10. I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon said in reading that verse. Spurgeon said this, quote, In his church, Christ teaches us that if we have more than others, 
We simply hold it in trust for those who have less than we have. And I believe that some of the Lord's children are poor in order that there may, there, there may be an opportunity for their fellow Christians to minister to them out of their abundance, unquote. That was Spurgeon. So as the church works, so when you, you look at what Spurgeon says, you look at that up against Galatians 6.10 and what the Apostle Paul says, as the church works in society to meet the legitimate needs of others, okay, legitimate needs of others, it should first seek to meet the needs of those who are in the church, who are in the household of faith, as Paul says, and then work outwardly in the world from there. Mm. Okay. That's the caveat. Thoughts on that one? Couple things really quickly, man, and, and I won't take a lot of time to expound on this, except to say what 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 you did in this section in particular was you depended upon God's word to inform us uh, for how we need to act and interact with culture. I mean, that that's basic mm-hmm, exactly, bi- that, yes. that basic biblical worldview. And what, what you've done is you've established that the Bible is sufficient to provide instruction for every good work Amen, that the believer brother. would engage in. And Amen. so what what what's happened is we've come off of that 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 truth. We've we've walked away from that idea. We've we've appealed to pragmatism. And say, hey, that which works and by, by what works, our thought process is whatever it takes to get our churches filled is what we should do. And, and anything outside of that, we really don't spend any time informing ourselves of what the word of God actually says. Oh, man, that's so and true. To the greater degree of what it, of, of things that you said and, and then and, and then studying it to understand what it means by what it says. I mean, mm-hmm. this this really un, this, this really kind of underlies what we talked about when we had a, when, when we uh, when we engaged uh with with our with our brother from uh from from G3 Josh Bice. Mm-hmm. In that interview we talked about biblical uh the fact that that the bible is sufficient. We talked about biblical sufficiency and how our culture reels against it. What you've just done in this particular section was to demonstrate uh very clearly that the bible is able to inform us in how we can interact with the poor how we can interact with those in need and how we need to verify and validate that there actually is a need that we need to meet and again the problem that you stated man is that most believers just simply neglect scriptural sufficiency we no longer have a desire to have our worldview shaped by what scripture says about the issues of life. And at the end of the day, that's really what's at stake. Man, I wholly agree. And sadly so. You know, it's, it's, it's sad that that's the case, but you're absolutely right, man. You know, contrary to what many people believe, including many Christians, it is not the role of government to bring about equality in society. I hope we've made that clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Equality, when you think about it, equality is both an anthropological and spiritual impossibility. Absolutely. Man, that's good. That's good. The government should be engaged in the pursuit of social equality, as was the goal of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, particularly in terms of undertaking the distribution or redistribution of certain material possessions is never mandated in Scripture. Not to mention that the real cause of all poverty in this world, spiritual and material, is sin. And sin is something that no government has the power to rescue us from. Amen. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. For the anxious longing of the creation 
waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One of the most beautiful passages in all the scripture. No government on earth has the power to set this world free from its bondage to the sinful corruption that has enslaved it since Genesis 3. That's good. And yet that is the way many people view government today. They see it as being inherently endowed with the power and authority to create a world wherein all our needs and many of our wants are met. Mm-hmm. A world wherein they can live lives of complete autonomy, totally free from any and all accountability to God so as to avoid any and all adverse consequences and repercussions of the disobedience in which they willfully choose to engage. A key driver of that mindset, even to the relatively small degree that it does exist within the church, a key driver of that mindset, though, is that the church is full of people who are discontent with their life. They want lives of comfort, ease and convenience. They're not satisfied with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, that if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Mm. Instead of praying in the way that Jesus modeled for us, in what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, instead of praying in that way, they not only want the bread, they want the mayonnaise, the mustard, the lettuce, the tomato, the pickles, the onions, the finely sliced and choicest deli meat. They want the whole sandwich served to them on a platter. Mm -hmm. And if they can't get the kind of meal they want from God, they'll just get it from the government. Mm -hmm. But you see, the kind of bread Jesus offers the world is the bread that leads to eternal life. Amen. Not mere temporal satisfaction. And temporal satisfaction is the best that any government can hope to provide. Listen, listen to what it says in John chapter 6, verses 33 and 34. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, that is to Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful prayers you will find anywhere. Verse 34 of John 6. Then they said to Jesus, Lord, always give us this bread. Lord, always give us this bread. Let me ask you, listener, is that your prayer today? Is that the cry of your heart? Lord, always give me this bread. Mm. Give me the bread that goes beyond what any government can and provide that gives life to the world, eternal life. Is that your prayer? In other words, is it your prayer, Lord, always give me more of you, Mm -hmm. the bread of life? Jesus Christ, the bread of eternal life, knows your every need, and he is sufficient to meet that need in and of himself. That is why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Thoughts on that? Now, and the n- number of things, man, I just, I, I think about this from a standpoint of what socialism is doing and what you just described and what is being described here is that socialism replaces the gospel with government. 
Socialism's attempt Mm. is to replace the gospel with government. Now salvation, the power of God under salvation is government. Right. It, it's yes. definitely it's definitely not the gospel. And and and, and when, it's, it's, when it's, it's, it's a, if I can interrupt, it's a totally, yeah. government is proffering a totally different soteriology. Absolutely. That's, that's what they're proffering. Absolutely. It, it's it's totally it's a totally I mean, at that point, everything gets redefined. And and that's absolutely what we're what we're experiencing. I I I, I don't know if you've re- if you referenced John six. Are you going to do that or are we? Uh, because my my initial thought when you talked about Jesus being the bread of life, I wanted to. I definitely don't want to step on on your toes. Uh, yeah, I did reference John six. I did reference John six verses thirty three and thirty four. Yeah, I want to. I want to go back. I want to go back just a bit because the, the context of that Jesus had just fed in John six. It just fed the five thousand, right? And and on the next day, and 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 John six twenty two, the crowd are looking for him, right? They're looking for him because yep. they just ate. They 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 want to they want to eat mm-hmm. again. Here's a mm-hmm. here's an opportunity. They they want to make him king. The thought process is, man, this this is a good deal. This this will work if if we can just get a, get food every day. That mm-hmm. that will definitely be the way to go. Um, yep. G- Jesus says in verse uh, uh, verse twenty twenty six. Jesus answered them, "Truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me. Uh, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves." Mm-hmm. Verse twenty seven. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son mm-hmm. of Man will give you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. And, and again, they try to convince him that no, 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 no. We, we, why don't you do some more works? We, we're not convinced. Why don't you do another, another miracle? And, and mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus declines. His goal is not to fill their bellies with that which is temporal, but with that Man, which leads on, to bro. eternal life. And, yes, and, and at the, at the end of the day, that's where we have to land. If, if, if a Christian is, 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 throwing away is putting off is letting go of that which leads to eternal life for what what is happening in the, in the temporal state we they're no different than what was taking place in the garden of eden with adam and amen. eve amen it, bro it, excellent it's, point it's, it's no different and so we we can't we can't let go of that which is eternal for something temporal that has no power to really promise or, or provide anything that we truly need that's that that would be my last comment on that thank you for that man you know Omaha, there's uh an 18th century preacher <clears throat> an 18th century preacher and theologian by the name of william ellery channing william ellery channing channing said this quote the office of government does not exist to confer happiness but to give men opportunity to work out happiness for themselves mm, unquote. that's good that's william ellery channing you know, I concur with Channing. Nevertheless, the Christian understands or should understand that true and lasting happiness will never be a reality in this present sinful world in which we live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. John MacArthur writes in his book, Christ Called to Reform the Church. He says this, quote, the world is the way it is today because it is the world. And the church must confront it with the full truth. It's hypocritical for Christians to berate the second the secular world the way unbelievers behave when so many churches are validating it either by believing in its ability to be redeemed by human power or by putting on a worldly circus of entertainment and cheap distractions from the real issues. Mm -hmm. Unquote. The kind of happiness the church is to be looking forward to is one that no government can provide or create. 
as the scripture declares in second Peter three thirteen. but according to his promise, we, that is believers in Christ, the church are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's second Peter three thirteen. Now, as we prepare to close this episode, Omaha, I want to reiterate that. Yes, there is a role for government to play in society. But that role is not to provide cradle to grave security in a world that is passing away. Amen. Paul writes in Romans 13, 4, that the governing authorities are to act as ministers of God. Paul does not say the government is God. God alone is the one who meets our every need, and he meets those needs in accordance with his sovereign will. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, that is with Christ, freely give us all things? The reason we can rest in those words in Romans 8.32 is because of what we know from 1 Peter 5.7, that believers in Christ can cast all their anxiety on him. We can cast all our anxiety on Christ. Why? Because he cares for us. He cares for us. In contrast to the Poor People's Campaign, whose mission statements are saturated with entreaties to the federal government for redress of their collectivist concerns, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In this sin-saturated world in which we live, None of us will ever have all our needs met, ever, okay, ever. That will never happen in this sin-saturated world in which we live. And another way of saying that is that God never promised us equality in this life. In fact, not even in the new earth would there be equality, as each person will be rewarded based on the deeds that he or she has done. That's good. We know this from Matthew 16, 27, where Jesus said, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father and with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. Mm -hmm. Yes, government has its role to play. Otherwise, God would not have instituted it to begin with. That's Romans 13. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, the role of government is never to be confused with or elevated to the role of God. I want to repeat, the role of government is never to be confused with or elevated to the role of God. God desires that government treats us all equally as bearers of his, uh, bearers of his image. But equality involves partiality, and partiality is sin, period. Close us out, Omaha. Again, I I think we covered it top to bottom. Uh, the 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 thesis, the premise. There's a big difference between equal and equality, and I, I we've hit that we've hit that home from every single angle in an effort to equip the man or woman of God listening to the podcast to be able to address and deal with what we're seeing in our church culture, which is this movement 
toward socialistic evangelicalism. And we've got, it's got to be stopped. Brother, I enjoyed this particular episode. I think our, our folks are going to enjoy it as well. I definitely want to encourage you, if you're listening, to share this podcast with others. Listen to it over and over again. Uh, tell others about the podcast. We so, so appreciate each and every one of you. Join us next time for the next edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. The Just Thinking Podcast, hosted by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, is a Christ-centered, gospel-focused, and theologically challenging program that boldly and unapologetically addresses social, political, and cultural issues from a biblical worldview. With an international listenership that stretches from the United States and Canada to Romania, Nicaragua, and Mongolia, the Just Thinking Podcast breaks through all ethnic, geographic, social, and cultural barriers to bring the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the issues confronting His church and His people. Subscribe to the Just Thinking Podcast using the podcast app on your Apple or Android smart device, or you can listen online at thebarpodcast.com slash JT.